Turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 this morning. Yeah, the book of Romans is a, a book that is preached very often in our, in our day and age, in our circles and churches like ours. Um, and sometimes it can be preached at the expense of other books. That shouldn't happen. But Romans is, you know, I think in a lot of ways it is worthy of a lot of the attention that it deserves because it has timeless truths for all of us in any spot of life that we're in, many great doctrinal truths and just wonderful natural applications that the Apostle Paul brings out there. So I'm looking forward to be teaching for today. This is a passage that's been on my mind a lot these past couple weeks and dealing with an issue that uh, I've been going back and forth a lot. So I'm excited to be able to prepare something and to present it to everybody today. And I hope that you're going to be blessed by it as well. So uh, we're going to be in Romans 1, verses 8 to 15. Before we read today, though, I want to go ahead and offer up a word of prayer for our time together. Lord God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful today, Lord, that we are able to be in your presence and that you have given your word to us and that it speaks wisdom and grace to us this morning. We come in need this morning to be fed from your word. We need the truth that it communicates to go through this coming week, and we need your truth and your spirit. We We pray that your spirit would lead us to your son, that your son would lead us to you, and that at the end of this time, we would be blessed by the words of your will. Father, whatever the cost may be, wherever you lead us, we pray that we would Leave today praising Jesus and following him. It's in his name I pray these things. Amen. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 15, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So a couple times uh, from up here, I know I've mentioned the name Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'm sure Daryl's mentioned him as well. Uh, He's one of the great preachers from the 20th century. He actually wrote a brilliant commentary on Romans. Uh, uh, He was one of the main sources I used when putting together the teaching for today. And if you don't know much about 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, I would encourage you if you are also an avid reader, there's a biography about him done by a man named Ian Murray, who's the head of the Banner of Truth ministry. Um, one of the best biographies I have ever read, because it's about, in my opinion, one of the best preachers that ever lived, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he's with the Lord, of course, now. His main work was done in the 20th century, but, I mean, his story is, is I would call it timeless. And there was a part in the biography of that Ian Murray, Ian Murray did where he takes a moment and focuses on Mrs. Lloyd-Jones, Martin's wife, and he talks about the comments she said about her husband. She was being interviewed, like, what do, what do you think about your husband? How would you describe your husband? And I don't care who you are. You could be the toughest coal miner type of personality that there is out there. When you read that section, there's going to be some tear stains on your pages because it's just a very touching section of his, this very dedicated wife just gloating practically about her husband. It's kind of funny because for most of us, that's a, a frightening situation, right? Let's just speak theoretically. You're hearing there's going to be a biography done about you. And maybe you think like, all right, I mean, I don't think that great. I'm pretty good at shuffleboard, so that's something, I guess. But, you know, all right. Now, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds great. Um, and this person tells you, okay, so next week, we're going to interview your wife and ask her, hey, tell us about your husband. What do you think about your husband? Now, you, you could have graduated from Joe Husband School and think, like, you've got this on lock, like, you know, I am the greatest husband. I don't care who you are. You hear that that's happening, that's code red. That's like DEFCON 7 blue. I don't know what the, what the worst one is. You know, that's, 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 that's a national emergency. Because if anybody has seen the less noble sides of your personality, it's going to be your spouse. Um, and though, fellas, you might not remember all your flaws, I can guarantee you she does. And, uh, you know, so when you hear that your wife is going to be interviewed about who you are, uh, you're probably going to think things like, I wonder if she's going to remember when I pretended to be sick so I wouldn't have to take the kids to soccer practice. She probably will because that was three days ago. Uh. (laughs) Well... Oh, by the way, like, let's say you hear that that interview with your wife is taking place next week. Breakfast in bed every single day of the week, right? Dishes are done before they're even dirty, right? Like, you know, we take care to meet that one. This is what Mrs. Lloyd-Jones said about her husband. She says, nobody, nobody understands my husband unless they first of all understand that he is an evangelist and a man of prayer an evangelist seeking to win others for Christ and a man of prayer. Now, fellas, I don't know what you think your wife or maybe soon-to-be wife would say in the situation, but probably you wouldn't think it'd be that ideal, right? Those are some high words that she spoke about her husband. And if you read that biography, you'll learn that it is true, that that statement, what she said, is very true about Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's also true about the Apostle Paul. 
And we see that even in just these verses right here, because the verses we just read, verses 8 through 15, they're really still just part of the general introduction to this letter right here. And in this introduction, we already see the Apostle Paul's heart for his people. And keep in mind, most of the people he's writing to, he's never even met. He's met a few of them, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But for the most part, this is just a church that Sorry, my mic's attacking my face. Um, this is just a church that he met in. He's you know, planted in Rome. And he's talking about these people, how he wants them to, he wants to be with them and to just keep preaching the hope that is in the gospel, that is in the resurrection of Christ. Now, if you read a lot of Paul's letters, you'll read that most of the times when he introduces them, he starts off by, relaying to his audience his sense of gratitude, how thankful he is for their love, for their faith, for their charity, for their hope. He gives them some words of appreciation. That's pretty common for an ancient letter, a letter for that time. Um, Of course, Paul doesn't just stop at that simple pattern. We'll see him relay his heart here, his heart that, like Martin Lloyd-Jones has, was an evangelist heart, a heart of prayer for his people. Now, there is something kind of different about the way Paul talks in these verses, Um, and that is that Paul seems to talk about himself a lot in these verses right here. And that's, that's not normally Paul. Paul has not the highest view of himself, right? Paul is usually more so focused on the greatness of God or the greatness of Christ. He's not usually focused on talking about himself, you know, and generally we're kind of the same way, right? We're very careful to even sound like we're boasting, right? To the point where like, I know this is true about me that if somebody ever said like, oh, hey, complimenting on your talent, just said, hey, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty good at this, aren't you? You probably had the response like, huh, you know, by the grace of God, you know, like, you know, God's, God's goodness. Yeah. Or, or they'll say like, oh, you're pretty, pretty talented at this. You're, you're pretty good at this. Or, you know, eh, well, no one's good by God, but you know, it's, it's not about me. Uh, to the point where like, even if like I'm talking to somebody else through emailing or texting, I'm very careful, maybe a little hyper careful about the first person. He was like, oh, I don't want to sound like I'm talking about myself too much, you know, here. And Paul, you know, he's, he's somebody who, is normally not one that likes to boast about himself, but boasts in Christ here. But he talks about himself a lot in these few verses right here. And um, But when we look at the text a bit more, we see that he's not so much just focusing on himself. He's focusing on what God has done for and through him, how he is serving God, and how he is wanting to be with God's people. Uh, you can summarize the statements, him talking about him thanking God. He also says that he serves God. He mentions this church in prayer without ceasing. He, he, he tells them that he wants to go and see them. He, he longs to see them. He wants to give some spiritual gift to you. Um, he wants to communicate that he wants to reap a harvest or some fruit with them. He says that he is in obligation in the preaching and sharing of the gospel, and he's eager to go and preach in Rome. So overall, I can count about 10 different statements from Paul that I want to talk about today. <clears throat> now, I know what some of you are probably thinking. He said 10? 10? Go through all 10? 
Olive Garden ain't staying open forever. This fool better have a lightning round or something like that. That's, that's a lot of statements. I'm going to group it together in just three, right? So overall, three groups of statements that Paul says in right here. Uh, the first section in verses eight through nine, Paul talks about the gratitude that he has for his people, how thankful that he is for them. Now, give or take, Paul is probably writing this letter in the mid-50s, AD 50s here. So, if you want to put a number to it, it's been a bit less than 25 years, a bit less than a quarter of a century since Jesus has died, risen again, and the Holy Spirit has come to his people. And of course, you know, I know a lot of us today are celebrating Easter, you know, it's the resurrection of Christ. And for those of you who are visiting us today for, uh, for Easter, fantastic. We are so happy to have you. Glad you're here. If you came in here really hoping I was going to preach a very Easter sermon, I am going to horrifically disappoint you. So that's, that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. I mean, in a, when we get to communion today, we always talk about the resurrection of Christ there. So we have a lot of Easter's every Sunday pretty much there because Christ's resurrection is the foundation of our faith. We should always be talking about it. But I'm not going to do a very, and maybe you already picked that up, I'm not going to be doing a very Easter-ish sermon today. I wanted to teach on something that I've been thinking about a lot and been very passionate about a lot. So, and I'm always passionate about Christ's resurrection, of course, as well. Um, but it's been about a little less than a quarter of a century since Christ has risen again and the Holy Spirit's come down to his people. And in that short amount of time, the gospel has been so prolific in its spread that it's, it's reached the city of Rome, which for all intents and purposes was the, the center of the, of, the, of the secular world at that point. So the gospel had spread very far. So why is Paul so excited about um, these churches specifically? I, I think there's one pretty natural reason as to why Paul is so excited about this. On, on one level, um, he's a Roman citizen, you know? That's, that's his people right there. I mean, I, 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 I mean, he's happy. Like, wow, my home, it's being, it's being infected with the gospel, right? Now, it's always controversial to mention anything about the United States in, uh, in a sermon there. Um, but bear with me. You won't get in trouble. I will. All right? So just, just come along with me. But a lot of us, if we heard that the White House was being taken over by the gospel, there's a sense that I think we would be excited naturally just because that's our people, right? That's us. If the gospel takes over the center of the leadership of our country, then naturally there's going to be some type of trickling down effect of the gospel affecting our land even. That'd be a great thing. That'd be something we'd all be very excited about there. And that kind of puts us into a sidebar of... Um, Amongst the many things we should be praying for, uh, we cannot forget that we should be praying for revival across our land here, that more and more people would be accepting the gospel. And, you know, depravity is a very obvious truth in our world, right? That's something that even um, those who are not believers can recognize that, yeah, there's something wrong about the human condition across the world. And, you know, it's in every center of the world. And being citizens of the U.S., we're open to see in, in really big focus the problems of our own nation. And a lot of times we might have 
what we call solutions to it, right? We think that if we can just get this person elected or just get this, these bills put into place there, then that will help solve these big issues. And, you know, it might help, but we know as Christians that if there is no change of the heart, there is no change of the person. We need to be praying for a change on the center of the human being, which only comes through the Lord's grace in the gospel. So if we really want the best for our land, we should be more adamant about praying for revival, that more people would come and accept the gospel. All right, uh, sidebar over there. So we know that Peter was the apostle that was charged with bringing the gospel to the Jewish realm, and Paul is the one who is charged with bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. And Paul was very successful in what he did. He probably didn't always feel successful, like when he was being imprisoned or beaten practically to death or shipwrecked. You know, probably didn't always feel like he was doing, he wasn't living what some preachers call his best life now in those moments, right? Uh, But he had managed to plant churches in Rome, That is a tremendous amount of success right there. That'd be enough to look back on, to be thankful to God for. And if you go to the end of Romans, you learn that he can list about two dozen names of people that are actually in these Roman churches. Now, two dozen names doesn't always sound like a whole lot, but you think about your own life and think that what if two dozen of your friends and family who don't accept the gospel accepted it. That, that's a lot. That's a lot of people. That'd be a lot to be excited over. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I might have to reach that number to, to be a, a true evangelist. I'm just uh, pointing out that, that that's a lot to be excited over. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's many more that Paul hasn't even met in Rome that have been impacted by the gospel, and I'm sure he's thrilled about that. And it's interesting to see what specifically about these churches he is excited about. It's their faith, right? Now, in our day and age, churches can be characterized by a lot of things, right? There's the church with the, there's churches that are characterized by their beautiful worship, There are churches that are characterized by their glorious architecture, their building. Churches that are characterized by a very well-put-together youth program, well-put-together daycare programs. Uh, There are churches that are characterized by their very hip staff. And you guys have me, but but you also got Daryl and Tim. So the balance is... the hitman scale kind of goes to the negative there. I mean, you've heard the podcast. You've heard, they mess up my mojo. That's why they always abuse me on that podcast. They're insecure. They, 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 they know that the hitman scales are a little bit balanced. And if you go tell them that, they'll 100% agree with you, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but Paul says with this church that he is happy that they are characterized by a faith, a faith so great that it is spread throughout the entire world. The world has heard about their faith. And as a church, I think we need to make sure that we are wanting to be characterized by the right things. 
Because what Paul sees as important are things that we should see as important. And obviously, like I'm not saying that worship building and youth programs are unimportant. They are. But they are not what is most important. They are not the main thing we should be characterized by. We should be characterized by our faith and our love. And that even happens on a personal level also. And this is not true in every circumstance. It's not so simple. But generally speaking, what you value the most is what you'll be characterized by. For example, if you do value faith, but the top of your list of values is getting a lot of material possessions in this life, we're going to be characterized by that. People will know us by that. Or if our main value is accumulating enough knowledge to be smarter than anybody else, we are going to be characterized by that. Because what you value will show out through how you interact with the world. So if you want to be characterized by faith, we need to look into our hearts and make sure that our faith is a priority to us. And a lot of times, like I know for me, it's usually not. And that's not something I can force into my heart. I need to get on my knees every day and pray that, God, don't just give me knowledge of what is right. Give me a love for what is right. Give me the faith, Lord. So we want to make sure we're being characterized by the right things. And it's interesting to see what Paul does here, because in response to his excitement over what he's seeing in these churches, he prays for them. In response, he prays for them. And to be frank, that is, that is not what we do. And it's not what we in our uh, day and age do. Uh, what we're more prone to do is once we hear that somebody has had faith and maybe has accepted the gospel, our mindset is good job done. Checklist. I'm going to add to my tattoo of souls I've saved. All right. I'm at 17 now. Let's go. Because so to speak, God's already stuck with them. So, you know, my job is done here and hope, hope, wishing the best. But we forget that the gospel, you know, it's the foundation of the Christian life. Accepting the gospel, there's no accepting the gospel. There is no Christian life. But the Christian life does not just stop at accepting the gospel. Depending upon what time of life a person accepts it, they have still a journey, a pilgrimage until the end there. And we need to always uh, benefit from the strength of others along that journey. Obviously, we need to keep going back to the gospel every day, right? We need that truth. We need that blessing. But we also uh, need to keep in mind that we are a body that encourages each other. We should be praying for each other. You know, not just letting go and letting God, so to speak, with some, our friend that accepts the gospel. We need to continue to pray for them because the Christian life is not over. So in those first couple of sections, we see Paul talk about the gratitude he expresses. In verses 9 through 11, the second group of statements, he talks about the deep desire he has to go visit these churches in Rome. You ever wonder sometimes what God thinks about our prayers? Like if he ever, it's how he reacts to them, you know, like, oh, here comes Eugene again. He, uh, he wants to tell me how thankful he is for all I've given him and then keep asking for that Lamborghini. All right. Oh, oh, here comes Christy. 
she got called on to do the family dinner prayer again, so she's going to say a bunch of words she learned in church to prove to everybody she's paying attention, right? I, I, I also really wonder how he, if he ever gets tired of my prayers of coming to him and having to say, yeah, messed up again. And I kind of wonder if he saw Paul come to pray, if he ever thought, oh, here comes Paul. Let me guess. He wants to go to Rome. Yep, yep. It's Rome again. Always Rome with Paul. I want to go to Rome. Please, please, please take me to Rome. Rome, 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 Rome. I want to go to Rome. What in Rome? Take me to Rome. Um, And, you know, Paul says he prays so fervently for them, and he tells them that as God is my witness, I pray for you, and I want to come to you. Now, God is, as God is my witness, we recognize that kind of language. It's pretty intense language. That's oath-taking language. Um, and I, I, probably, if we were on the receiving end of this, Paul is saying, as God is my witness, I want to come see you, you know, our internal response might be, whoa, okay, chill. I believe you. I'm not going to take you to court over it, okay? I believe that you want to come see us here. But I think Paul, he understands the human condition well enough to know that you know, he's been saying he's been wanting to come, but because of some genuine gospel work reasons, he hasn't been able to come. But that will not stop people from talking, right? That was one of his problems in Corinth. A lot of his opponents in Corinth were starting to spread lies about Paul in the churches, saying, this guy says he wants to come, but where is he? He's never here, right? So I think Paul wants to be very specific that, look, I know it's been a while since I've been there, and I want to come out there. But by the plan of God, I have not been allowed to yet. But I want you to know that I still want to come see you. And he tells them that as God's my witness, I pray faithfully for you, and asking that somehow or by some means that he will succeed at last in coming to see them. Now, sometimes I put myself into the receiving, receiving end of these words here, and maybe this is just my, my cynicism, but uh, I felt that if I heard the Apostle Paul say that, I pray that somehow or by some means I will see you, my natural reaction probably would be, that's very vague. Like, kind of sounds like you're not really wanting to. You're just avoiding specifics because you don't want to be held accountable to it. That's my natural cynicism there. But I think that beyond that, and we look into this text deeper, what we can more see is that I think Paul is just open to the fact that he does not know how God will answer his prayers. Right? A lot of times we pray for things and they can be good things. It's, Paul wants to go to see his brothers and sisters in Rome. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that at all. A lot of times we pray for good things ourselves. But we always have specifics in our mind. This timeline, in this way, with these people. And when it's not answered in the way that we envisioned it, sometimes we think, well, God has failed us. Which also shows in our heart, how we truly think of God in that moment. But I think that there's a deep lesson here that we don't always know how the Lord will answer prayers. Sometimes it'll just be a flat-out no. Sometimes it will be a yes, but not nearly in the way 
that you expected there to be a yes. And we keep in mind that if God says no to our prayers, even if it's some, for something good, for something even gospel service ministry related, there's always something bigger at play here, right? We say that God works in mysterious ways. They're really only mysterious to us. Like it's, it, they're not actually mysterious. Like he's working in godly ways. We just aren't able to catch on to them. But God, you know, he has plans for our lives. And sometimes a no to what, when we want a yes, actually turns out to be better in the long term. For example, let's say the Lord had answered God's prayers and allow Paul to get to Rome when he asked to. We may very well not have the book of Romans in our Bibles if that had happened. Because the reason he's writing this letter to them is because he can't see them. But he wants to teach them the gospel truth. He wants to teach them how to live in light of that gospel truth. He wants to encourage them. But if he had gone when he asked to, who knows if we would have this letter kept? I don't know if he would. But because God kept him from his desire, we now have thousands of years of church history blessed by this wonderful book of scripture there. That's a, for me a great lesson as a Christian there. That when I long to do something, and even if it's something that is faithful to the Lord, I have to rest in the wisdom of God knowing that I don't know how it's going to be answered. And yeah, sometimes it's answered in completely different ways than we expected. For example, Paul did eventually get to Rome. If you, you're in Romans 1, if you go to the chapter previous in your Bibles, you'll be in Acts 28. That's when you read about Paul coming to Rome. But what did Paul come to Rome as? Prisoner, right? Not as um, an evangelist on another missionary journey. He came as a prisoner. <laughs> I laugh. I make myself laugh way too often. I need, I need to stop doing that. Um, because I, uh, I picture almost like two different movie scenes going down. I'm picturing Paul before going, before going to Rome, just begging God, God, please, I want to go to Rome. I want to see my brothers. I want to see my sisters. I want to preach to them. Please, God, let me go to Rome. I, it's my one desire. It's my main desire. Now let me go there. And the scene cuts to him in chains um, on a prison boat going to Rome. And he's looking at his lap going, all right, it's not exactly what I had in mind, but okay. Uh, so in ways we never expect sometimes, Paul does answer our prayers. But, you know, I, you can't help but note that when Paul gets to Rome, those Roman Christians, they escort him into Rome. Still as a prisoner, but they're allowed to escort him back into there. And I can't help but thinking that as Paul is seeing these Roman Christians he desired to see so much, thinking that they had faith in me. They didn't give up. They believed what I was saying. It's a great illustration that Paul was one of those people who pray anything, anywhere, anyhow, at any time, and really mean it.
Uh, there's a group of letters written by Paul that we call the prison epistles or prison letters. They're called that because these were the letters that were written by Paul while he was in prison. An example of one of them is the book of Philippians. Paul wrote that probably while he was living uh, as a as prisoner in Rome. And he's writing to the Philippians because... You know, they heard that he was in prison. And at this time, while the Christian church, it's really in its infancy. Uh, I, I'm sure it was a big deal when one of the main leaders, especially if you're a Gentile believer, has now, he's in prison and probably going to be executed. And, you know, they probably can't help but think, what's going to happen to us if they've got the very best one we've got, right? And in this book, he turns and tells these Christians that I want you to know that what happened happened for the advance of the gospel. That's the kind of heart that I want to have. And I know I don't have yet to be able to say, even in the worst of situations that no, this is being used for something bigger than me. It's not what I want right now. It's not what I think is best right now but it's being used for something bigger than me. So that leads to the third thing that Paul mentions. And we talked about uh, the first group of statements about his gratitude, the second group of statements about his deep desire for the Roman Christians. And in verses 12 through 15, we read about his sense of obligation for the gospel. He feels obligated to serve for the gospel. He is a man with orders. Uh, he says in verse 14 that he is under obligation. Now, what does that mean? Probably the same thing that when the uh, prophets in the Old Testament said, the hand of the Lord is upon me, or the hand of the Lord is moving me. He has, he has a real sense that God has called him to do something, and he knows that this is what he has to do. And I hope that, maybe it's not right now, but I hope that all of you feel that about what it is <clears throat> you're doing in 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 life and in service, that there's no way to always find out and test if what you're doing is what you're meant to do. You could try to do what Gideon did with the fleece, but unless you got access to sheep like the longs do, I don't know how how well that'll work out for you. I'm not sure if cotton will do the same thing or not. Um, But I hope that there is a real sense that as Christians, we we should feel a sense of obligation to, to serve in some capacity, right? Now, specifically in the church context, it may not be what you thought it was going to look like, but that's okay. It may not be a grand display of your prowess in Christian service, but that's okay. I mean... It's okay. It's hard to actually accept that it's okay. But it's okay. The important thing is, is that we understand that there is this obligation for service. But it doesn't just stop at obligation. In, in verse 14, we also see that the sense of obligation was met with a sense of eagerness. He says he's eager. He's excited in verse 14. Now, that is that is one of the most beautiful things about the Christian life is that that which was once just duty and an impossible duty is now something that can be our delight. William Cowper wrote a, 
wrote a hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience. And in that hymn, if you ever wanted just to read it sometime or listen to it, um, it's, it has some beautiful statements in there about how the Spirit changes our hearts. As we look at things that were once duties, but are now delights, things that we are eager to do. So we don't just understand our obligation to serve. We also see the service as something that we can be excited about now. You know, That's not to say that there will not be seasons. Everybody has seasons where they hate what they're doing, right? But as we begin to see service in the church, it's no, no longer something that we just have to do. It can be a get to do. I don't just have to go to growth group. I get to go see my brothers and sisters and have fellowship. I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church, worship the God who saved me, and praise him for all that he has done. I don't have to go check up on somebody's having a hard time. I get to be an instrument of encouragement to a brother and sister in Christ who is in need. And when we have that sense of obligation and we have that sense of eagerness what we're doing, we also have a sense of expectation, I think. Like the phrase, do great things for God, expect great things from God. I'm not giving you a message that says that just because you do things right, everything's going to shape up for you. That's not how this works. Right? The Christian life and life in general is much more complicated than that. What I am saying is that if we have faith in God and what we are doing, if we are excited about what we are doing through God, then we know that God can use us in any possible time, in any possible moment, for any possible good thing. We may not always be aware of it. A lot of times we bless people and we never even hear about it. But we have that sense of expectation to know that God can use us. And that's not, you know, I, I know that for a while I had the practical view. I wouldn't say this, but in my heart, I felt that there are different levels of, of real service, you know, like, you know, serving the nursery. That's, that's, that's Weeblow Scout service, right? Eagle Scout service is getting to do announcements or being on the worship team, right? Because it's more on display, I'm sorry, David found that very funny. I don't know, I don't know why. <laughs> I just heard him laughing. <laughs> um, but I, an instrument can't do the entire symphony. right? One appendage can't be the entire body. There, it, it may not seem that every aspect of service is as glorious, but they're all necessary. Right? We need those who lead growth groups. We need those who serve our worship teams. We need those who also do our children's ministry, our nursery, our kitchen. We need all these things here. And if we approach these things not just as have tos, but things we get to do for the God who saved us, our motives are serving not out of a sense of rewarding, a sense of earning something, but out of a sense of giving praise and giving grace to those around us, I think our hearts be more in tune that God can use us for things much bigger than we may have ever known. 
going back to Philippians chapter one, you don't have to turn there. Um, there is a statement in there that for a long time, and I, I go back and forth with this feeling as well, that I, I resonate with Paul here. You know, and Paul says, you know, in some ways, I just want this to be over. I just want to die and to go to heaven. It's you know, not really suicidal. It's just, I, I'm, I'm tired. I want this to be done. I want to just skip to the end game. That's not a reference to Avengers, by the way. That's just, it popped up. Uh, I, I want to get to the end of this. And sometimes, I'll be frank, I feel the same way. I, and I, you don't have to admit it, but I know at least once, all of you probably have as well, that I just, I want this to be done. You know? I'm, I'm tired. I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. I don't feel like I'm ever noticed. Like, I just want this to be over. But Paul doesn't just stop at saying, I just want to die and go to heaven. He concludes by saying, it's better for me to remain here. Because if I'm here, then there's something I can do for the Lord and for his church. And that's the place that I want to be at. I think I'm getting there is a very unselfish view of service that, look, if I'm here, I'm here for a reason. I don't have to know what it is. I don't have to see the glory. And it's hard to really be in a spot to where you can accept not seeing the rewards of your hard work. That's a lifelong battle, I feel like. But to be in a spot where the Apostle Paul said, if I am here, there's something that I am to be doing. Right? It, may not be what I expected, but God has me here for a purpose. And that, again, that does not just go for apostles, evangelists, pastors. It goes for all of us. We're here for a reason. Maybe we're still trying to figure it out. Maybe you do know what it is. Great. We're here for a purpose. There is something else to be done. There's more things to be done for the gospel, right? And we don't ever have to be afraid that the story of the gospel hangs on our every little move. Because we all know God will be victorious in the end. And he could do that even without using us, but he uses us. We get to be a part of it. It's messy, it's imperfect, but we get to be a part of service. Service in some way. There's a phrase in in verse 9 that it's kind of the secret to this kind of lifestyle. It's this quiet confidence that God uses us for his glory. God is my witness that I serve him. In this context, meaning I worship him with my spirit in the gospel of his son. So what we're doing at the end of the day, I mean, our hearts are filled with gratitude for him, for the blessings of his day. In this church, we're about to be filled with gratitude as we approach the Lord's table. We've had preaching the word, fellowship, prayer, meals, and We have, I can't think of what else, and we're thankful to him, and we bow before him and say, God is my witness. I will serve him in the gospel of his son, right? Nobody else may see what you do. Sometimes it happens. And sometimes you see a lot of people get a lot of praise and credit for what they do. That makes it harder. But why do we do what we do? We have to honestly confront ourselves 
And sometimes we're not always doing things for the Lord. And I know that a lot of times, even in my time here at Berean, I have not done everything for the Lord. I've done it for myself because I have a wrong view of service. And I want to be in a spot where Paul can be in that no matter what way of service, no matter how he wants to go about it, as God is my witness, I serve him and I worship him. And that is the type of quiet confidence that can give us the ability to go out into the workaday world of the week and understand that there's going to be a harvest of our fruit that will last for eternity. It's a really, really good thing to be a Christian. It's a really, really good thing to have confidence and assurance that success will be there, even though we're not always successful. Because service isn't about us. It's about God. And with that, I'm going to invite the ushers and Jason up here as we begin to approach the Lord's table.